think Lindor is the kind of player that makes one smile. How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Tim Britton, also from The Athletic. You are listening to The Metrospective, a podcast about the New York Mets. Tim, are you having a normal Thursday? It's a, a normal Thursday, a normal week to start the <laughs> to start a new year, Andy, in the United States of America and the baseball world. So just waiting for something to happen, you know, anything, really. <laughs> yeah, that's everyone said they really wanted the baseball offseason to start. They really wanted the new year to kick off well. Well, here we are. Yeah. So, I mean, for the Mets, at least, it uh, has started out basically the way uh, their fans have been waiting, you know, 13 years for a year to start, basically, since the Johan Santana trade back in, in February of 2008, uh, <laughs> landing uh, a player that makes one smile in uh, Sandy Alderson's attempted tagline for their next marketing campaign. I like uh, that. And Francisco Lindor and, and Carlos Carrasco, uh, who's a, a pretty good second piece uh, in a, a January 7th trade for the Mets. For sure. So just real quick up at the top, uh, I am not a permanent host here on the Metrospective. I am uh, filling in as we kind of transition into a new era with the podcast. Tim will have some details about that uh, near the end of the show. But we figured, obviously, with a move of this magnitude, it'd be worthwhile to, to chat it out, talk about uh, what the Mets have done, where the Mets are going, and kind of, uh, you know, maybe a little bit about what's next. But, you know, start me off from the top, Tim. Like... Outside of the fact that they're getting possibly the best – well, one of the best shortstops in the sport and they're getting a very good, you know, number three type pitcher. Uh, like, if you're the Mets, why do this rather than go into the free agent pool? What, what's what's the, the rationale here, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think at the start of this offseason when you looked at, like, the various directions the Mets could take, they were a team that was set up that had – uh, a lot, had money to spend at a time when like 27 or 28 other teams were not going to spend money. Uh, and they had three main needs on their roster that happened to align with the three best players on the free agent market. Uh, and so Sandy Alderson said back in November, like there are two currencies in baseball. There's money and there's prospects. We've got one. We don't really have the other. Uh, and, and, you know, they have money. They don't have prospects. That's very mm-hmm. different from where the Mets have been uh, for a while. They usually don't have either of those things. Uh, and so, you know, when you were trying to construct what was the best path to the offseason, it was starting with JT Realmuto, George Springer, or Trevor Bauer. When you looked at it as a, a whole, though, you know, the best player they could have conceivably acquired this winter was probably Francisco Lindor. Everyone knew Cleveland wanted to move him, and he's a guy who, you know, everyone else in free agency, you're getting Real Muto's a catcher going into his 30s. Springer is a center fielder going into th- his age 31 year. Bauer's a, a starting pitcher going into his 30s. There's not a lot of long run time for those guys, even if you would get more team control of them. Lindor's going to play next year at 27. That really aligns with the rest of their homegrown core. Like they've got, uh, you, you run through it, Pete Alonzo, Dominic Smith, Jeff McNeil, Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo. Like that's a top six in your order. You throw Lindor in there. No, none of them are... are 30 yet. McNeil is the oldest and he hasn't even hit arbitration. Right. So you've got that group. And then when you think that the cost to acquire Lindor was not what I expected it to be at the start of the winter. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, you know, the Dodgers better than I do and, and how this compares to what they got back uh, or what they gave up for Mookie mm-hmm. Betts. Uh, like I expected this to start with a bigger piece than 
than just both of Ahmed Rosario and Andre Semenes. I thought a bigger major league piece would have had to have been a part of it. Which right. is why I didn't think the Mets should do it. If you told me on, on November 1st, this is what it's going to cost to get both of those guys. Yeah, obviously mm-hmm. this is the best way to make this team better now and into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the Mets trade is obviously, or excuse me, the, the Mookie Betts trade is obviously the template here, right? In that you've got the uh, star on an expiring contract. Um, because no one trades prospects anymore, you know, how do you, what's the next best thing if you're the trading team that you can give up? It's money, essentially. You can just offload cash. So the Red Sox attached uh, David Price's contract with, along with Mookie Betts. Um, so that, you know, offsets a little bit of the fact that all they really got back was Alex Verdugo, who's a good, you know, good player, but is not Mookie Betts, um, and Jeter Downs, who's a prospect. Um, so in, in this case, it's Carrasco, who's I think due 27 million over the next two, 12 and 12 and a $3 million buyout. Um, yep. you know, plus they didn't want to pay Lindor. And so basically, I mean, the, the, the overwhelming sort of response from folks who I talk to in the industry is they prefer the Mets side of this deal. <laughs> um, but, you know, and like my sort of counter to that is like, well, then why didn't you trade for Francisco Lindor? <laughs> like if this was all it took, what, you know, like you knew he was out there. But, it, you know, I wrote about this a little bit earlier this week. I think it was this week. It's been a long week. Um, but like good players are available this winter via trade if you're willing to pay them what they're worth and give up maybe a little bit because it's not like you know uh Jimenez is a, is a decent sort of asset you know Rosario obviously was once a top prospect I know the you know that the, the the bloom is a little bit off the rose with him but had if you traded him two years ago right it would have seemed like a, a bigger deal um so if you're willing to spend a little bit of cash you can get good players and they the Mets without making a huge financial commitment or really rating their farm system, just got two very, very good players. Yeah, when you go back to that that money prospects dichotomy that Alderson drew up, uh, like this is still kind of dealing money for Lindor. It's basically being yeah. willing to take a gamble on a player, you know, yeah. that you think you can extend uh, beyond this season. They're, they're optimistic they can do that, even though they know it's not a guarantee. Uh, and, and you're right, outside of San Diego and New York, this is now the third trade. Uh, and, and you wonder what 28 other teams are thinking uh, for the most part. Like the, <laughs> the Mets did this without trading any of their top six or seven prospects. Uh, and like, mm-hmm. this isn't a, a great farm system. This is maybe a, a mid-tier farm system. They don't have right. anyone in their farm system who you think is going to be a, a major league impact player until at least 2023, uh, mm-hmm. if not beyond that point. Uh, and so, you know, Josh Wolf and uh, Isaiah Green are, are second round picks from the last two years, not first mm-hmm. round picks. Uh, guys who, who, they might be players down the road, but I, I would have thought if you were including those two as your prospects here, you're not getting Carrasco for one, uh, and you're probably trading like a Brandon Nimmo off your major league roster instead of Ahmed right. Rosario. Right. But the problem for, you know, Cleveland is that Brandon Nimmo makes money. And so they don't, I mean, why would you pay money for a player when you cannot pay money, I guess? Uh, so th- another thing happened when the Dodgers acquired Mookie Betts is they signed him to a lifetime contract. Have you done any sort of back of the napkin sketching on what that might look like for Lindor? I mean, obviously that's the intention, but like, do you f- foresee that being the outcome here? I, I don't think it's 12, 12 years, 365. Was that yeah, what, what Betts yeah. got? I don't, you know, it's, it's probably not that magnitude, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it might will well be a nine figure deal that starts with a three. Um, like, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, like that is what I probably would have guessed 
at the start of 2020, if you said, mm-hmm. what is Francisco Lindor going to sign for? Uh, that would be right around the number I'd pick because he's going to be hitting free agency before his age 28 season. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that uh, doesn't happen very often and, and something that drove San Diego's interest in Manny Machado. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's probably the the high end would be right around that, that Machado contract. Um, the Mets, you know, Sandy Alderson said, like, we, we didn't ask for a negotiating window. They had that with Santana. They, they didn't hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but we feel comfortable with where we are, with what we can offer as a city in New York uh, for to a, a guy who's from Puerto Rico and obviously a, mm-hmm. a lot of Puerto Rican community in New York, uh, who's uh, an owner that is married uh, to uh, his, his wife is Puerto Rican. Uh, and then, you know, also they're one of the teams that will spend money. Uh, and that's one of, you know, this this offseason, it's two. I don't know how many it will be next offseason. Uh, and so certainly you would say that the Mets are the front runner uh, yeah. to have Francisco Lindor on their roster in 2022. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me uh, if they got something done. It might not be, you know, in the next couple of weeks or before spring training right. or before opening day, but it's probably before the end of the 2021 season. Yeah, well, it's something that you can't really do now because that affects what you do for the rest of the winter, right? Like that takes them out of the running for for various sort of um you know, free agents. Where does you see the team going from here? Yeah, so this puts their payroll, I think it's about $179 million and the the competitive balance tax is about $188. Uh, That's with the high-end arbitration estimates from MLB trade rumors. Uh, Collectively, it might be lower than than those numbers because I I would expect arbitration to be harsher on players this year than in the past. Um, But it makes it tough to add George Springer under the, the... competitive balance tax threshold. Steve Cohen has said he would prefer not to go over that threshold. Sandy Alderson called it a uh, significant demarcation on Thursday. So I would not think the Mets would go over that that $210 million. So I think Springer reading between the tea leaves, it sounded more or less like, you know, we'll have him, but on our terms if he wants to. If it, sure. You know, if he's willing to sign for what we're willing to sign him for, sure. If not, you know, have fun, go somewhere else. We can fill in. And, you know, it's really the the... What does that filling in entail? Like, is it we'll just sign Jackie Bradley Jr. and have that be our outfield? Or is it, you know, we're going to roll with Brandon Nimmo in center field again uh, and play Dom Smith in left field because we don't know about a DH situation? Um, they still have some some room at the back end of their rotation uh, to fill out uh, with some depth options to compete with, like, Steven Matz in spring training off of his uh, very poor 2020. Uh, some They could use a, a person who throws with his left arm in the bullpen because uh, they don't have one of those really on the major league roster at the moment. Uh, and they could probably use an upgrade at third base unless they think J.D. Davis is going to turn into uh, a league average defender there, which he mm-hmm. hasn't yet. So, okay, help me out here. Um, now, to be clear, I covered the Mets in twenty from 2010 to 2012. Uh, I am uh, very familiar with the level of uh, justified frustration that Mets fans felt towards the Wilpons, who obviously were uh, sufficient, suffice to say, not great stewards of the franchise. And I recognize why fans are overjoyed with how Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson have conducted themselves thus far this winter. But they're seriously worried about the the collective, or the, excuse me, the CBT. Seriously? I, it's... You know, I, are I you think, ki- like, are you kidding me? Are you familiar with like what the penalties are the first time you go over the CBT? I, I, I do this like the Reds, the 2018 Red Sox went over by more than anyone else in the history of the sport. They went more than 40 million dollars 
over the CBT. They won 108 <laughs> games in the World Series, cruised to a World Series championship, and they paid $12 million in tax. Yeah. So like, let, let's do let's do a little CBT explainer, right? Because um, teams do this all the time, right? Is they use the CBT as like the idea that if you go over it, you are in some you are in no man's land. Like you don't want to know what's on the other side of that wall, man. Right? Okay. Here's what happens when you go over the CBT. You pay the difference between the CBT and your collective, or excuse me competitive balance tax payroll, which is AAV of all the salaries, you pay 20 cents on the dollar, right? Mm-hmm. You pay one fifth of what that number is. So I just did this earlier because I was curious, right? So right now the Mets have about a little shy of, they have about 29 million to play with, right? If they sign George Springer at his price, like what is, which is believed to be right now, which is like a $35 million AAV, I would bet against it ending up there i would say it comes out but say they do right that puts them at 215.6 million which means in order to do that they would have to pay a grand total of 1.12 million do you know how many (laughs) 1.12 millions steve cohen has i i get it like i get that it's a business but like there is something a little dispiriting of seeing this guy who comes in and his whole thing is that he's gonna like you know be different he's going to be bold and i think he's he's obviously doing a very good job right but to to already like to accept this artificial limitation i think it's just it's it says more about the sport really than anything else you know what i mean yeah and i think you'll have people in the sport tell you that this year in particular you want to stay under the the competitive balance tax threshold because who knows what's going to happen with the collective bargaining agreement like you need to keep you know you don't want to have those those extra penalties because if you go over a second time they're different than if you go over one time they, okay like, again, but they're again <laughs> not not significant penalties they, they they're like a yeah. slightly harsher slap on the wrist but right. it's still a the slap reason- on the wrist the reason why the Dodgers made a series of moves in 17 and 18 to get under the CBT is because they had been eating the tax for five years. And so once you get to five years, you pay 50 cents on the dollar and you start to get into to a territory where you lose draft picks, where you can't spend as much money um, you know, in the international market, all that sort of stuff. It becomes more punitive the more times you do it. But like doing it once, yeah, eh, not a big deal. <laughs> you know, I don't right, know. Like the, the Red Sox got under it before the 2017 season, like they maneuvered, they traded for Chris Sale that winter and they still lowered their payroll, got under it to reset the penalties, then went way over in 2018 and again, (laughs) won the World Series. (laughs) So it just, you know, like, I I don't know, uh, maybe maybe you know, like what percentage of NBA teams pay the luxury tax? It's a huge number. Like, I feel like it's like 10 or 12 that you hear, you know, the Portland Trailblazers pay the the luxury tax in the NBA and nobody in baseball does it. Uh, And it is, you know, I I think like it's been it's been weird with the Mets to try to temper expectations with Cohen coming in because there is a part of you that that as a Mets fan is like, hey, there's these three players that fill our three needs that are all available. Why not sign them all? And it's really difficult to construct a rational argument against just doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you can't afford to do it simple as that like and even the you know the 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 explanation would be right is that you'd have to keep paying it as the years go on but like they have 
50 million or more tied up in expiring contracts off this year and Syndergaard and Familia and Stroman and, um, you know, theoretically like Conforto walk, which I know they don't want to do. I understand you want to maintain the flexibility to sign Lindor, sign Conforto, all that sort of stuff. But like treating the CBT as if, you know, like we can't, like if we're over the CBT at the start of the season, we can't go over it midway through the season. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. Uh, I'm not, I'm <laughs> The state of the sport is a little is a little down, but you know what? Like I don't know. I should stop being so negative because, like, obviously, this is a pretty good day for Mets fans, and, yeah, and, and understandably, I, like, this is a great day for them. And I think you can. I mean, you can plausibly make an argument for the Mets that with Lindor's addition, like we went through, like the top of their order can be something like uh, Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Lindor, Michael Conforto, Pete Alonso, <laughs> yeah. Dom Smith, Dom Jeff Smith. McNeil. Like that's yeah. a really good top six. You don't need George Springer necessarily in that top six. That's um, true. It would, That's true. It would be a better it. top seven with him <laughs> in there. Uh, and But, you know, you can still build a good team with Jackie Bradley Jr. just so sure. long as you're using that extra financial flexibility uh, that you save on not going for Springer, either this offseason or in the future. The, the, I think the frustrating thing for a fan base, and the Mets fan base has gone through this, is you hear stuff about financial flexibility and you wait year after year <laughs> after year yeah. for the team to actually do something with right. it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think I, I feel like I'm ranting more about uh, the collective of the sport than the Mets per se. Because, like, you know, Cohen deserves the benefit of the doubt. He's, he's come in and kind of done what he said he was going to do. Like, they've been aggressive. They have They've figured out what some of the inefficiencies are that like if you are willing to spend a bit of money you can get superstar players um you know they were they got you know the McCann and the May deals are you know they seem reasonable like they're they're in a pretty decent spot heading into 2021 and they have a room to do a little bit more yeah and, and I mean this is the deal that really separates them from the Mets of the last decade because this is mm-hmm. you could have you can imagine uh Trevor May and James McCann being like the big moves yeah. uh under the prior ownership they, they've signed guys like like Wilson Ramos and Anthony Swarzak in the past sure. and built off-season plans around that type of talent uh this is this is the one that you know like, like we said it, it's the first time really since Santana that I think they've made a trade of this magnitude um you know, it, it it belongs in that class with the the Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez and Mike Piazza trades in the club's history of hey, you're landing a legitimate MVP candidate yeah. uh, in his prime uh, and someone that you're banking on spending a lot of money on moving forward. Yeah, a player who's a, a perfect fit in terms of just both his temperament, his personality, his ability. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's like a match made in heaven in a lot of ways in, in Lindor. He's probably I mean probably the best position player they've had since. David Wright's prime. I David guess. Wright, yeah, prime, prime David and Wright. Yeah, I don't, yeah, like 2007, 2008. David Wright before they <laughs> built that new stadium that didn't fit his swing. Right, yeah, before before he injured his back, and then they built a ballpark that was a middle finger to him. <laughs> yeah, those were the days. I like City. City Field's a great park, but uh, that was not uh, the best uh, initial layout. <laughs> It's amazing, like how it's still kind of a pitcher's park, and they've moved the fences in like thirty <laughs> feet everywhere. Yeah, I remember uh, Jason Bay like first getting a good look at that, and just being like, "Are you kidding me?" Like looking at left field, just being like, "What?" It the the wall just keeps going. Oh, good times. Hey, so where does this uh, where does this leave the Mets in terms of competing with Atlanta? You know, I think I think. They're a lot. They're a lot closer than they were. I think it really yeah. depends on what Atlanta does. Right. Um, 
because they've got a pretty big hole in the middle of their, middle of their lineup without Marcel Ozuna back yet. Uh, you know, maybe they decide to find another one-year deal guy, whether it's like trading for Chris Bryant or something like that, mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. they they swallow and and give Ozuna a bit more uh, than they're used to giving those guys. Because uh, uh, you know, you, Atlanta's lineup is still really really good. Their pitching staff is a much much bigger question mark than it has been uh, yeah. the past couple of years. You don't know what Soroka is going to do. You're counting on Ian Anderson uh, to, right. to do what he did at the end of last season. Uh, so I, I think, you know, they both look like playoff teams now. I think coming into Thursday, I would have said the Mets are a team that might surprise people because they underperformed so much last year mm-hmm. uh, and could a team that in a full season could win 86, 86, 88 games. Uh, and now they seem like a team that, that should win 90 plus. Uh, and, you know, you look at them, the Braves, the Padres and Dodgers probably as the four teams in the National League that seem like legitimate contenders to to get to the get to a World Series. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think the point you made about Atlanta's pitching is um, is really sound. I mean, I think that over 162, I'm not sure how the pitching line staff that they rolled out last year would really hold up. I think, you know, they're obviously banking on uh, a bounce back, honestly, from Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton wasn't particularly great in 2020. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but he's also a year older. Um, so they're banking on that. You know, they're banking on five interesting starts from Drew Smiley, you know, Soroka coming back. Um, their bullpen, you know, doesn't have a ton of swing and miss guys. So, uh, it's you know it's interesting. Their, their lineup is ferocious though. Uh, but then again, like the Mets are gonna bang the ball around, so it's it's interesting. Like it's a it sets up to be a pretty good clash, and I think that the Nationals also will be at least like competent again in theory. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, you know, I would pick the Mets to win the National League Central. I think they would probably <laughs> probably be the team in that division that's trying the hardest to win at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess there is. Uh, we are maybe missing the mark here if we're, uh, you know, crushing Sandy Alderson for bringing up the CBT <laughs> at a time when like you Darvish just got given away and like teams are, you know, the, the Cleveland like cut Brad Hand so they didn't have to pay him an extra million dollars. Like just, just I don't know. The, the the state of the industry is a bit problematic, but like that is why the Mets have been able to make up so much ground and go from a place where, you know, they were not particularly relevant uh, for the past couple of years to all of a sudden, like if they make a couple more moves, they might be the favorites in one of the toughest divisions in the sport. Yeah. And it's why kind of Cohen's ownership has come at really as perfect a time as it could right. for the Mets. You, you know, you can bemoan that you've had to live with the Wilpons for as long as you did as a Mets fan. Uh, but you know, if you're picking a year for Steve Cohen to come in and be the wealthiest owner in, in baseball, it's probably a year where he didn't go through the same financial hardships, however much other owners want to express those more specifically than that, uh, that they all went through in 2020. Uh, and it's at a time when he can flex that financial advantage more so than comparatively than like any other time in the sports history, it seems. What, what would you do if you had $14 billion? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I would buy a formal, a shark in formaldehyde and place it in my work, in the lobby of my workplace. So we're, we're pretty simpatico there. That's a good way. That's, that's a good note to end on. Hey, uh, can you tell uh, the listeners kind of how things are, are going to work moving forward when they uh, will no longer have to deal with me, even on this temporary basis? 
Yeah, so I know a lot of people have asked on, on Twitter and on our, our live Q&As about the future of the Metrospective. We will be back uh, with more regular episodes, uh, I think, starting the week of January 18th. Uh, is the plan, uh, although, you know, who knows how circumstances can change that. Uh, we will have a, a new and, and more regular co-host. Uh, you know, Pete McCarthy uh, had been with the Metrospective, had hosted all 150 plus of the episodes we had done to this point. Uh, his contract was up at the end of, of 2020. Uh, and, and Pete and the Athletic mutually parted ways and, and like it was legitimately a mutual parting of ways where they, they feel good about each other. Uh, so we're going to miss Pete, uh, but I think we've got a, a co-host that uh, fans will enjoy because they, I sure know they're not coming to the Metrospective just to listen to me. So we'll have more on I, that in the next next week or so. I am also aware of who the co-host is and uh, fans will definitely enjoy that. That's that was That was a good pick. I like that. I like that. If we went to an actual retrospective, like we could talk about the 2010 Mets. Like I have, I can t- tell stories about the 2010 Mets for hours. That team was amazing. I did want to. I did want to just yell at Sandy Alderson the first time I ever talked to him. Like, why did you trade Angel Pagan for Andres Torres? <laughs> that was a. Oh man, yeah, that was. Yeah, that was not. That was not a great winner. That was actually. Yeah, that was the next winner. They also, I believe, uh, signed Frank Francisco and. Ronnie Paulino, and that was like it. Did, was that was that the Frank Francisco and John Roush year? Did they get yes. both of them the same offseason? Yes, they did. They did get both of them. Yeah, you're right. You're right. They got John Roush. Yeah, the second baseman was Brad Emus. Um, <laughs> yeah, not you know Sandy didn't start off his his first Mets tenure with as much. It wasn't as auspicious as the second one, but I think that had a lot more to do with the, uh, the ownership than his confidence. It's not like in the, in the past 10 years, he's like gotten that much better as an executive. He's, he's known what he's doing for a long time. Yeah. You go back 40 years, Sandy Alderson has been, been pretty good at this when, especially when given more freedom. Yeah. Uh, so. Someone, someone was asking me, they were talking about the idea of like, how how the sport has evolved and said something effective like okay so take the person you think is the worst general manager in baseball right now we don't have to name names but like we'd probably come up with the same person but anyway <laughs> how far back in baseball history do you have to go for him to be a top 10 gm or top 5 gm and i'm like well at least into the 80s because like you know he's not going to be better than Sandy Alderson <laughs> I was, I, was that, I think that was Farron because on on, Farron, on, yeah. on Beyond the Scrum, I, I listened to that like a month late. So I listened to it like two days ago or something. <laughs> uh, and I, I thought the same. I was like, well, Alderson, he's, he's, yeah. he's been pretty good since the yeah. 80s. Um, yeah, like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know if this guy's better than Stick Michael. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know how much farther back I can go with knowing the GMs, uh, you know, what was it? Johnny McCarthy, who was the the Mets GM in in '69 or something. I, who, Johnny who Murphy. Johnny Murphy. Sorry. Johnny Murphy. So, Jeez. Uh, Prayers up for Johnny. <laughs> so yeah, it's you know you you've got a guy who's been probably as transformative a GM as as any in the last uh, last generation here in in Alderson running things and and Jared Porter seems like he knows what he's doing as well from from everything I've heard in his track record. So the Mets yeah. seem like they're in better hands now than they've been uh, in a little while. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Well, on that note, uh, thank you everyone for listening. And as Tim said, the show will be back in a couple weeks, uh, hopefully with more regular schedule. Until then, enjoy Francisco Landor. Great player. Adios. Adios.